The following sermon was preached at Liberty Baptist Church. We exist to showcase the glory of God by being and making disciples of Jesus. To learn more about us, please visit our website at lbcliberty.org. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked, or stand in the pathway with sinners, or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bear its fruit in its season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, I pray that through this psalm, you would further the righteous along the way of godliness. And that you would transport the wicked onto the way of the righteous. And that you would do both for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Imagine with me that there were only two roads in life. And that all labels and categories of people were secondary to the category on which road someone was on. Envision that this road not only described where you're at in life, but also where you're going. You could see by the road that someone was on what they loved and what they hated. Who they were and what they gave themselves to. Psalm 1 presents such a visual by dividing humanity into two categories. The righteous who love the scripture and inherit God's blessing and the wicked who suffer destruction. Before us in this psalm are two different people on two different paths, living two different lives, heading toward two different destinies. And this contrast is presented throughout the psalms, proverbs, and much of scripture. In reality, there are fundamentally only two kinds of people in the world, the happy and the miserable. And from the beginning, God has distinguished between two such groups of people. From Genesis, there have been descendants of the promise and descendants of the serpent. At the end of Deuteronomy, in chapters 27 and 28, the writer shows us that there are the blessed and the cursed. Proverbs teaches us that there is the way of the fool and the way of the wise. Jesus in the Gospels teaches us that there are the sheep and the goats. The New Testament epistles lay before us those of the Spirit and those of the flesh and so on. In the Psalms, there are the righteous and the wicked. And in Psalm 1, the author contrasts them. For us to ponder which path we are on and what destiny we are heading toward. So in following that structure of Psalm 1, I want to set before you this morning three contrasts. Between the righteous and the wicked. These are categories, by the way, that will not show up until verses 4 and following. But I think we're in to interpret the entire psalm with those two categories in view. Three contrasts between the righteous and the wicked. The first contrast we see is a contrast of happiness. 
a contrast of happiness. Look with me at verse 1. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. The opening word of the psalm, happy, conveys the state of being supremely blessed, wondrously joyful, deeply satisfied, peacefully content. This same term and idea underlie Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5 on the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. And though the term happy is only used here in the psalm, the enduring happiness of the righteous one permeates the entire chapter. And we see from verse 1 that there is an exclusivity to this happiness. Happy is the one It is not one state of blessedness among many other states. This is a description of the happiest life. The most blessed life. The psalmist chooses to describe the blessed way of the righteous first by telling us what a godly person does not practice. And we could summarize verse 1 this way. The righteous find true happiness by separating themselves from sin and its temptation. Now to be clear, verse 1 is not advocating for our removal from society or a disengagement with those outside the church, but it is teaching us that we are to be insulated from the world's sinful influences. We see in the opening line that the righteous avoid sin at the level of belief as well as behavior. Verse 1 presents a threefold triad of what and who are to be eluded. You see in verse 1, it's the advice of the wicked, the pathway with sinners, the company of mockers. And likewise, there's probably a progression of sin that's intended to be understood by these verbs of bodily motion. The righteous man or woman does not walk, nor stand, nor sit in the presence of wickedness. Why would that be? Because sin, the psalmist understands, takes us further than we want to go. These verbs of bodily motion are metaphors for the progressive internal attitudes and external behaviors of the wicked. Sin always seeks to express itself in the extreme. And we see an illustration in verse 1 of the descending spiral of sin. People settle into sin by stages. They are led step by step down the way of the iniquity. First listening and walking. Then standing and acting. And then by the time you know it, sitting and advocating for such a sinful lifestyle. There comes first the advice of the wicked in verse 1. Or we could say the temptation of disobedience against God. That advice is formed in the context of single decisions. By giving in to that sin though, sin attains a foothold. Giving in to the advice of the wicked can and often does lead to standing in the pathway of sinners. The particular sin is tended to and it thrives, it thrusts the soul deeper into sin. So evil's influence takes further ground and ascends to greater heights by the counsel of the wicked, both being listened to and heeded in sin. 
There continues on the pathway of sinners a road to the company of mockers who are missionaries of wickedness. These are people who have a complete indifference and hatred toward divine things. They despise instruction. They have no restraint in wickedness. The happy one, though, verse 1 tells us, separates himself from sinful snares and worldly pollutions. He is just as cautious about the advice of the wicked as he is the pathway of sinners and the throne of mockers. From walking to standing to sitting in the pathway of sin and its advocates, the righteous and holy one has a holy fear of sin and thus distances himself from its temptations. Modeled in Psalm 1-1 is a universal, humble frame towards sin and a temperament of heart that guards against every evil. He does not indulge in sin on account of grace. The righteous one is not in the business of dabbling with sin or managing the sin. The psalmist, this righteous one, is in the business of slaying sin. He has no leisure against sin because sin has no leisure against him. He rises and attends himself to the first sign of sin. He recognizes that the distance between walking by and standing with and sitting beside Sin is, a, is dangerously close. There are not miles of distance, friends, between the advice of the wicked and the seat of scoffers. This is something we desperately need to hear. Because in a belief system that states that you can be close to sin but unaffected, near but not committed, observant but not influenced, this verse implores us to be aware of the downward, damning trajectory of sin and its temptations. We must be concerned with all sin, for all sin troubles God, and all sin seeks to intensify our engagement with it. John Owen has been so helpful to me in this regard, saying that sin always wants to go to the extreme. It always takes you where you don't want to go. There is no such thing as being able to coddle and manage sin. It always wants to take hate to murder, lust to adultery. So I would just ask you, based on the opening verse, what sin are you flirting with? And what sin should you flee? Psalm 1 teaches us that true happiness is found in holiness. The Psalms teach us that joyful are those, yes, whose sins are forgiven. Praise God for that. Psalm 32, 1, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. But I'm fearful that that may be the only category of blessedness that we have, that our sins are forgiven. But Psalm 1, 1 introduces us to a category that is this, happy are those who are not engaging in sin. Not only those who have experienced forgiveness of sin, but those who are not engaging in sin. The righteous find true happiness by separating themselves from sin and its temptations. The psalmist continues in verse 2 by stating that the righteous one possesses happiness not merely by what he avoids, but by what he embraces. Look with me at verse 2. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction. And he meditates on it day and night. 
So the righteous find true happiness by separating themselves from sin and its temptation. And what is more, the righteous find true happiness by delighting themselves in Scripture and its instruction. So after stating that happiness is not found by delighting in the sins of the world, the psalmist states positively in verse 2 that happiness is found by delighting in the satisfactions of the word. The righteous man or woman is able to withstand the counsel of the wicked because he or she is more enthralled with the Lord's instruction. You see in verses 1 and 2 that there is a battle for the mind. There's a battle on whose counsel will we heed? The counsel of the wicked or the counsel of the Lord? And that word for instruction in verse 2, Torah, refers most basically to the five books of Moses known as the Pentateuch. But I think there's a broader body of instruction that we should also ascribe to this word. And that is the book of Psalms itself. Indeed, the Psalms were originally collected into five smaller books in part to imitate the five books of Moses. These books have always been received as God's instruction. And so with Psalm 1 leading the Psalter, I think it's appropriate for us to see the Lord's instruction here, certainly referring to the Pentateuch, but also referring to the Psalms. And yet I think there remains an even broader application still that Torah here encompasses all of God's written word. So that the righteous one and holy one takes seriously and delights in everything that God has said. That written word, verse 2, is said to be the holy and happy person's delight. So much so that verse 2 continues by stating he meditates on it day and night. That word meditate would have been understood as concentrating for the sake of understanding. It has the idea of rehearsing, reading in an undertone, muttering something to yourself. It is a verb used elsewhere in scripture to describe the cooing of a pigeon or the growling of a lion. This is the daily exercise of the happy person. His careful, diligent study of God's Word. And you'll notice in verse 2 that this meditative study takes place day and night. That the godly person can do this at night as by day indicates that the, he has learned the Lord's instruction by heart via memorization. Verse 2, I believe, implies memorization because it's unlikely that this righteous one is reading a scroll by candlelight. Maybe so. I think it's doubtful. I think it's more so that he under, understands the Scripture such that he's able to recite it to himself. This righteous one takes a text of biblical truth and he marinates on it. He carries it with him all the day long. He goes to bed at night thinking about the word of the Lord. He's constantly thinking about it and his, his heart is regularly feasting on it. What is interesting is that in the divisions of the Old Testament, meditating on God's word is given a major priority. The beginning section of the writings here, Psalms through Chronicles, as well as the prophets, Joshua through Malachi, both begin with explicit encouragement to meditate on the law and assurance that if you do, prosperity will be rewarded. And I do not believe that's accidental. That two major description, 
divisions of the Old Testament are both from the forefront emphasizing that meditating on God's word is a blessed exercise. Now let's begin making some connections between verses 1 and 2. Because we're, see, we're to see them together. Verse 1 explains that the righteous one is not influenced by sin's enticements. And verse 2 gives us the reason why. Because he's influenced in another place. He's influenced by God's word. And that influence, and this is important for us to understand, that influence is not merely at the intellectual level, but at the level of the heart. The righteous one is not merely obeying the word of the Lord because he understands it more fully. It's because he loves it more fully. Take note that verse 2 goes directly to the inner person and to desire. The explanation the psalmist gives for why the righteous person is succeeding in holiness is that he is happy in God and his instruction. It's not merely that he's associating with better people than the wicked and sinners and mockers. And this teaches us a very important lesson. That the remedy against the pleasures of the world are pleasures of the word. We could say it this way. The fight against sin is won by a delight in God. The fight against sin is won by a delight in God. We see clearly from verse 1 that the thoughts and pleasures of the world are in view for this man. He knows what is available to him. He hears and sees wickedness and evil. And yet he is able to abstain from these desires because he has a greater desire in God's word. And that desire, verse 2 records, is sparked and sustained through meditation. By looking and looking and looking again upon the glories of God in the scripture, the righteous one gladly passes on the false pleasures of the world for their surpassing pleasures of obedience to the word. See with me the bookends of happiness that shape verses 1 and 2. Oh, happy is the life of one who is happy in God's word. Verse 2 is immensely important, therefore, for building a doctrine of sanctification. Certainly not the only theological idea that we would consider in the doctrine of sanctification, but this is very much foundational. These verses instruct us that outward expression of living result from inward desires of love. We do what we do because we want to, not because we're forced to. Which means this, overcoming sin is less mechanical and more surgical. Worship must be replaced. Meditation must be exchanged. Yes, there is a biblical precedent in verse 1 from separating yourself from that which entangles. But verse 2 comes alongside verse 1 with another helpful encouragement. You must also delight yourself in God's word. It is not merely enough to distance yourself. To avoid, avoid, avoid because sin will come back at us. 
And what will keep us from re-engaging that sin is a superior delight in God. Until fellowship with God through obedience to His commands and meditation on His teaching captivates our affections, we will continue to find avenues to walk and stand and sit at our former stomping grounds of sin. This is the lifestyle of the addict. Always finding a way back. Here's what John Owen said. If we seek to correct an outbreak of sin in the soul, but neglect the basic duties that promote our spirituality, like Bible meditation, we labor in vain. What Owen is getting at is that we must replace our worship of sin with our worship of God. The happy person separates himself from sin and its temptation and delights himself in Scripture and its instruction. Both acts are necessary and serve our fellowship with God and our worship of God. And both are applicable to every Christian in this room. Maybe by God's grace you are beginning to see victory over your sin. I I would just encourage you to continue in that fight. But maybe some of you are languishing over why this plaguing sin continues to stunt my growth. And I believe these two verses both apply to us today. How do you escape the ever-present ensnarement of a particular sin? A greater delight in God, His Word, His way through a greater attention to Scripture. Why can you continue to kill sin and continue to avoid the snares of the wicked? It will be through a belief that God, His Word, and His way are better, evidenced by the sweetness of our engagement with Scripture. In other words, for those who are languishing in delight, these verses call you to meditate on the Scripture. For those who are diminishing in holiness, these verses call us to meditate on the Scripture. Meditation kindles And sustains the fire of holy living. It gives us an increased desire for God and His ways. I wish I had more time in verse 2 to flesh out practically how it is that we might meditate on the Scripture day and night. I just want to mention two things briefly. I want to give you an encouragement for more time. Think about all that bombards our lives in the world. All that we see, all that we hear, all that we experience. We cannot combat that by giving crumbs to our Bible reading. You as a Christian, you guys as a family, us as a church, have got to come to the realization that something has to go and time in the Word has to come back. To our daily, weekly schedules of living. I think for most of us in this room, if we were asked, why are you not engaging more faithfully in Bible reading? I think you would be tempted to say, I'm just not sure where I would have the time. Maybe that's not the only thing, but if I can speak candidly, it is something that is often a stumbling block to my own personal Bible reading. I would give you an encouragement for more time, let me offer one more encouragement. That of a different technique. 
when you read the Bible, one of the things that you should be after is meaning. What does this text mean? Even this week, I can read Psalm 1 and have done for the past, but you know what this week did? It, it fed my soul. It encouraged my faith. Because I was seeing connections. I was understanding this text. So certainly we want to read broadly and understand all of the Scripture, but could I commend another way of reading to you? That of reading deeply. Taking a passage of Scripture, five or six verses, writing it out, every other line on a blank sheet of paper, and making as many observations as you can about that text, and see if that doesn't help you in some capacity. I believe it would. The happy person reads and relishes God's Word. And friends, I just want to encourage us, let's take hold of the blessedness of verses 1 and 2. These verses show us that meditating on the Scripture, engaging regularly with the Bible, is not a burden to despair of, but a treasure to delight in. We find in verses 1 and 2 a contrast of happiness between the righteous and the wicked. And again, though the, though the wicked are not explicitly mentioned in verses 1 and 2, I think implicitly there's a contrast going on. If you look at verse 4, it says the wicked are not like this, and I think that extends all the way up to verses 1 and 2. So the righteous find true happiness by separating themselves from sin and its temptations and by delighting themselves in Scripture and its instruction. We've seen first the contrast of happiness between the righteous and the wicked. We see secondly in verses 3 through 5 a contrast of stability. A contrast of stability. In these verses, the righteous are pictured as planted, productive, and ultimately prosperous, while the wicked are rootless, fruitless, and hopeless. Look with me at verse 3. He, the righteous man, the happy one, is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bear its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, he prospers. Now verse 3 is still connected to verse 2 in this way. Bearing fruit is an extension of being connected and delighting in and meditating on God's instruction. So we see in verse 3, the likening of the righteous to one planted, productive, and a prosperous tree. Because the righteous person's connection is connected to the life-giving Word of God, he is able to bear fruit and be healthy despite external elements. Such elements in ancient Israel would have been a dry climate with hot winds, scarce rain, but we see that those elements do not deter the righteous one from being a fruit-bearing tree. This is because due to the constant supply of water through those flowing streams, the roots of that tree are able to be nourished. Are able to be nourished whether the external elements are going well or not. And as a result, we see that the leaves of this tree do not wither. But are able to stay fresh and green. 
The tree is able to bear fruit because its life is dependent on a changeless source, the ever-present streams, which are conveyed here as the Word of God. So the godly are able to stand and be stable and fruitful because their flourishing does not depend on external settings and surface circumstances. Their flourishing depends instead on a connection with God in Scripture to these flowing streams of divine instruction that nourishes their souls. So what could we liken to delighting and meditating consistently on the Scripture? The psalmist says this, it's like being planted by a stream of water that can provide access to the root system of a tree in the hot winds of summer. And as the tree drinks from the streams, so the righteous drink from the instruction of the Lord. As that tree is able to bear fruit in harsh elements, so the environment created by the wicked in verse 1 cannot extinguish the righteous. Verse 3 ends by saying, whatever he does, he prospers. And this is a verse that may stagger us upon first reading. What does this mean? In short, this is not a verse that affirms every day is a Friday Christian life. Instead, it affirms that whatever the godly do in holiness is not in vain. The rhythms of the righteous are not wasted. Everything done in obedience to God, even though it may not be seen by the world, will ultimately prosper. This is one of the reasons why Psalm 1 has been seen as an introduction to the Psalter. Because all throughout the Psalms, the righteous are having issue with, the wicked are are prospering. And the righteous seem to be being persecuted, having difficulty left and right. But the psalmist says in chapter 37, fret not over the one who prospers in evil. Why? For in due time, Psalm 1, you will prosper. All throughout the Psalms, there are lament Psalms about the wicked prospering. And Psalm 1 is to frame our entire view of those Psalms and that situation. I believe Ephesians 6 8 is a very helpful verse in interpreting the end of verse 3. It says, Whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. I think that's generally what the end of verse 3 is getting at. That a life spent in God's service for God's glory ends happily and will endure eternally, even if it's not immediately seen as prospering. You obey the Lord this week. You do something that no one sees that is righteous and helpful to the church. Know this, you will prosper. Notice in my outline that I said ultimately prospers. You may not be rewarded now. You may not be blessed now. But let me tell you, friends, you will be rewarded eternally for what you do in godliness and holiness. The righteous are planted. They're productive and they ultimately prosper. But verse 4 says, the wicked are not like this. The wicked, on the other hand, are rootless, fruitless, and hopeless. So the psalmist used contrasting similes in verses 3 and 4 to hide the dissimilar stability of the righteous and the wicked. Look with me in verse 4. The wicked are not like this. 
that is rooted, fruitful, prosperous. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. So in contrast to this flourishing tree of verse 3, which retains its leaves, even though the hot winds of summer are around it, the wicked are likened to chaff, which denote dry and dead plant matter. The image here in verse 4 is taken from the threshing floor during harvest time. Where part of the grain known as the chaff was discarded. At harvest time the grain was gathered to an elevated place. Then it was thrown in the air where the wind would separate the light chaff and husks. And blow them away. While the heavy kernels, the heavy grain, fell back to the threshing floor. Then the worthless chaff would be gathered up and burned. And that's what we see at the end of verse 6. About the way of the wicked leading to ruin. This chaff will be burned and destroyed. So it's evident in verse 4. That the dried chaff. Is set in contrast to this luscious tree in verse 3. The wicked are rootless and fruitless. But they are also hopeless. Look with me at verse 5. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. The wicked are hopeless in the sense that there is nothing that they can do to escape this judgment that verse 5 talks about. And I believe we should interpret judgment here in verse 5 as end time eschatological judgment. And I'm getting that in part from the use of chaff in verse 4. That this is a strong indication that this is end time judgment based on how chaff and end time judgment are used together throughout Scripture. The reason that the wicked will not stand in the judgment is that God knows their ways. Just as He's watching over the way of the righteous, so He knows the way of the wicked. This judgment will be a declaration and not a discussion. Every mouth will be silenced at this judgment. And although the ungodly live prosperously now, they shall be like chaff. Verse 5 continues, Nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. There is coming a day when sinners will no longer gather in the assembly of the righteous because they will be cut off and led to ruin. Which makes us pause at this moment. And I would encourage you to think about this personally. Your entrance into heaven will not be by association. The sheep and the goats will be separate. The wheat and the tares will be separated. The righteous and the unrighteous will be separated. Where do you stand? On which road are you walking? There will be an eternal separation between God's friends and God's foes. And I pray that each one of you consider that day. When you will face Almighty God. And Him knowing everything about you. Will make a declaration. That you will either depart from His presence as an evildoer. Or you will enter the joy of your Master. We've seen in this text a contrast of happiness. Of stability, and finally in verse 6, we see a contrast of destiny. A contrast of destiny. Verse 6 The Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. The way of the righteous is protected, while the way of the wicked perishes. The Psalms 
are filled with various literary features, one of which is parallelism. This is one of the more important literary features in understanding the Psalms. Parallelism is where the second line adds to or contrasts the idea of the first line. So in in verse 2, we see what's known as synonymous parallelism. That you have the righteous one delighting in the Lord's instruction and meditating on it day and night. That second line gives more information about the righteous one's study of Scripture. In verse 6, we see contrastive parallelism. That the way of the wicked is set in opposition to the way of the righteous. The Lord watches over the way of the wicked. Excuse me, the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. We see in verse 6 that God watches over the way of the godly. That is, they are known by God and kept in His care. All the godly will make it to glory. The good shepherd will ensure that all of his sheep are protected. Let me also add a note here as to that title, righteous. We study scripture in context of what all of the Bible says about who we are. So there's a genuine sense in which we are practically righteous by God's grace. I think in the Psalms, that title, righteous, refers to those who are believers and who trust in God, who have their sins forgiven, and who now imperfectly obey God. Certainly not a righteousness that leads them to be able to be in God's presence apart from Christ. God watches over the way of the godly. The way of the righteous is protected, but the way of the wicked perishes. The end of verse 6, the way of the wicked leads to ruin. This is so because God knows all and sees all. And as a consequence, it's God's omniscience, Him knowing all things, that is the guarantee that the righteous will ultimately prosper and the wicked will finally perish. God cannot be deceived or coerced in this judgment. So the main question to ask about the path you are on is, does God accept it? Does God commend it? God will either affirm the life you have lived or He will renounce it altogether. We saw in verse 5 that God will not affirm the wicked in judgment. Verse 6 speaks to a sad but sure defeat of all plans for the ungodly. Their pomp, pride, power, plans, and pleasures will all perish. And they will live eternally in unending conscious destruction. So this judgment in verse 5 has everlasting consequences. They will lead, be led to permanent ruin. Interestingly, in verse 6, the text states that the way of the wicked leads to ruin and perishes. I take this to mean, along with verse 4, that the lifestyles of the wicked will not endure. Essentially, everything that the wicked has will be taken away from them, even their very lifestyle. So we have seen in these six verses, two different people, on two different paths, leading two different lives, heading toward two different destinies. And at the end of Psalm 1, the reader is presented with a choice. Either the way of the righteous that God oversees 
or the way of the wicked that ultimately perishes. And for those in the room who are walking on this way of the wicked, I would just encourage you to meditate on Psalm 1 and to think about all the blessings that the way of the righteous offers you and all the miseries that the way of the wicked leads to as well. I wish I had time to take you with me to the miseries of hell and the joys of heaven. And there you would see very clearly which path you must choose. You must choose the way of the righteous. You must align yourself with God and humble yourself and receive His instruction. As Jesus said in Matthew 7, you should enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and few are those who find it. Pray that you are one who finds that way. One question that we must ask in verses 5 through 6 is, how do the righteous who are still sinful stand in this judgment while the wicked are not able to stand? And I would speak on behalf of everyone here this morning that there is a way to stand in the judgment of your sin and to escape ruin. There's a way for you to be freed from the sway of the wicked. And that is for God to save you by awakening you to the gospel of His Son, Jesus Christ. In fact, it is Christ Himself that fulfills this psalm. Christ is the promised King of Deuteronomy 17 and Psalm 2 who keeps all of God's law. He's the righteous one who always delighted in the Father's instruction. Christ never walked in the advice of the wicked. Or stood in the pathway with sinners. He is the ideal righteous individual of Psalm 1. He was perfect and happy. His life bore a harvest of salvation for sinners. In his death on the cross. He stood in the judgment for sinners. To take God's wrath against them. Christ rose from the dead. And now watches over the way of the righteous. In his intercessory ministry. And as Psalm 2 says, you need to find refuge in that righteous one. You must turn from your sin and your wickedness to find one who can stand in the judgment on your behalf and take that which you deserve. A final word here for those who are not Christians in the room. The devil's chief lie is that in obeying God and living the Christian life, you will forfeit all of your joy. And Psalm 1 says nothing could be further from the truth. In coming to Christ in faith and repentance, you will find where true happiness is found.